Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, and as always, thank you for joining me. If you remember from last week, we discussed the trial testimony at the 1990 trial, so Zuno 1, the trial testimony of one Lawrence Victor Harrison. And I had kind of represented at the end of the podcast that we were going to move on this week and look at the trial testimony of Hector Boreas. Well, those plans have changed just slightly for a few reasons. Let me um, let me explain. First of all, I went back and I looked at the 1992 testimony of Harrison and thought that maybe there were some things in there that we should have covered or I should have covered last week and didn't and think that I would be remiss if I didn't move on or didn't go back and talk about those. Second is the testimony of Hector Boreas in the 1990 trial, again, Zuno 1, covers several hundred pages of transcripts. He was called as a witness several times, and the very simple fact of the matter is I wasn't able to get through it all in a way that I could digest it and and make it presentable today in this podcast episode. So we're going to do two things today instead. Number one is we're going to go back and look at the 1992 trial testimony of Lawrence Victor Harrison. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the elements of that particular testimony that I find interesting and in some respects very thought-provoking. And then we're going to go and we're going to, uh, at the end, look at a new claim made by Hector Boreas. So one of the things I do for you is you don't have to read 300 pages of Hector Boreas' testimony at Zuno One. And you don't have to go and try and find a YouTube channel uh, where Hector is making some new claims I have handled that for you, and I'll explain what he said a little bit later. I always want to remind us of what we're trying to do by looking at the trial testimony from both the 1990 and 1992 criminal trials, Zuno 1 and Zuno 2. We're trying to do three things. We're trying to dispel some of the false narratives that come from the last narc, which in some respects we think are um, intentional false narratives. And then we have the dramatic license narratives that are in Narcos, Mexico. So that's number one. Number two, we want to continue to question and analyze the government's efforts in connection with the prosecutions relating to the Camarena case. And that's going to be very pertinent for something we're going to talk about with respect to Harrison today. And then three, we're always looking at those unanswered questions 
relating to the Camarena case itself, to the actual kidnapping and interrogation and, you know, the tragic murder. So those always are the three things that should be in the back of our minds as we walk through this testimony and, and frankly, almost everything we do in this podcast. Before we get into Harrison's testimony, I want to give a truth about trials and something that that people who haven't sat through a trial may not understand. People who've watched LA Law or The Practice may not understand. And that is for almost every single trial, a lot, if not most of the trial, is pretty darn boring. And that's the case in the Zuno trials. It was the case in the O.J. Simpson case. It's the case in almost every trial. So, for example, last night I was going through some of the Berea's testimony, and there was probably 50 pages of back and forth and back and forth about when Cervantes was showing photographs of some of the traffickers, who he identified, how long he took, whether he'd been prompted. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's a couple of things there that are interesting, could have been significant. I'm not sure they really end up being that way. But frankly, it's just it's kind of laborious testimony. Same thing is true with Harrison especially in 1992, because a lot of the questions, a lot of the testimony is the exact same as it was in 1990. You've got less defendants, so or less you have fewer defendants, sorry. And as a result, there's less cross-examination. There's um, some truncation of his testimony in general because of those fewer defendants, but a lot of it's the exact same. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in talking about his 1992 testimony was to look at things that were either the same or slightly different. And in that regard, one of the things that was interesting is he is asked by Zuno's counsel, Ed Medvin, who I will um, you know, disclose again, number one, I worked for him for many years. And number two, I considered him a mentor. Doesn't make him perfect. Doesn't make all the work that we did with the others who were involved in the case, Ron and Jim and Mary, doesn't make everything perfect. In fact, I, there are times when I'm going through this going, God, we could have done, you know, we should have done something a little bit different. Um, But you know, I, I again, when I read it, I see my mentor talking about it. But Mr. Medvin goes through and asks about the people who were involved with Fonseca and Caro and Felix Gallardo. And Harrison makes a very 
he's very pointed in saying, look, you have to understand there were a certain group of people who were all at the same level. And he puts, you know, Felix Gardo, Rafa, and Fonseca in that group, of course. But then he also talks about Kochi Loco, as we talked about last week. He reiterates Javier Barber Hernandez's position and the change in position. He mentions El Sami and Sami's direct connection to and his closeness with Fonseca. What was interesting for me was that he listed the same people okay, and described kind of the two tiers. So he, as he talked about it, there was the horizontal tier, which were the bosses, for lack of a better word. Fonseca, Carl, Felix Gardo, Coach Loco. And then each of them had their own people underneath them. And he called that a little bit more of like a vertical um, hierarchy. But again, interesting that he describes it very much the same way. As we've talked about with other witnesses, as we talked about with Harrison last week, there's no question that Harrison was involved in a lot of things. And so a lot of his testimony may well be true. I also think that he is prone to exaggeration in places. He makes no illusions that he's trying to protect some people. And so, as is the case with a lot of witnesses, you've got to try to understand and figure out which part of his testimony is true, which is partially true, which might be which parts might be false. All right. We talked last week when talking about his testimony that he doesn't mention Ruben Zuno very often. And he talks about the fact that he his knowledge of Zuno um, didn't indicate that he was part of the cartel. And I want to read what he says in response to questions from Mr. Medvin in the 1992 trial. So, question, is it correct that you overheard literally thousands of conversations that in one way or another were drug-related? Yes, sir, that's true. And those conversations were basically between people in the Fonseca Quintero group and their various underlings and various officials of one kind or another. Yes. And you never heard Ruben Zuno's voice on those tapes, did you? I did not specifically recognize the voice of Mr. Zuno on any of those conversations. And then there's a, a and, but then it gets interrupted with a continuation of the answer. Maybe he was on them, but I didn't specifically recognize his voice. Question, you never heard his name mentioned? No, I did not. Question, as far as you personally knew, Mr. Zuno was not a member of the cartel. Is that correct? 
your personal knowledge? Answer, which is another question, did I know him to be a partner of theirs? Yes, sir. No, I did not. Now, this is interesting. When you combine it with his testimony at both trials, that he was familiar with the Zuno family and that he actually knew Ruben Zuno. So if Zuno had been around, he would have recognized him. And yet what he says, going back to the first trial, he says he saw him twice. Once at the party for or the birthday party where Carl was on the dancing horse. And then one time at Fonseca's residence. That's it. That's all he knows. Juxtapose that with the claims of the government. Remember, we started off and we talked about the uh, the opening statements in both trials and the allegation that Ruben Zuno was an intricate part of the cartel, right? So intricate. Remember, they talked about the fact that they had, you know, he was so important that they called him at different times. And yet, you have somebody in Harrison who says he knows the family, he's met Zuno before, doesn't know him to be part of the cartel, doesn't know him to be, you know, a partner of Caro, Fonseca, Cochiloco, Miguel Angel, Felix Gardo, and never ever heard him on the tapes that he says he, or on the radio conversations that he says he monitored all the time. So I think that that's an interesting piece of testimony. Now, one of the things you're going to hear when we talk about Hector Breyes' testimony is a DEA 6 that he wrote where he says that he had asked Garate Bustamante basically to bring him witnesses from Mexico. And, and we'll talk about that in more detail. Remember, too, the connections. Placentia Aguilar, Cervantes had all worked together with Garate Bustamante. Harrison had worked with Garate Bustamante. You know, if you're doing the the hub and the spokes, you know, you really start to see that at the center of a lot of these witnesses was Garate Bustamante. So there's a little bit of testimony from Harrison in the 1992 trial that I think is interesting to see who Hector Boreas and by extension, the prosecution put their faith and trust in. So there's a question from Mr. Medvin and Garate Bustamante worked for Ernesto Fonseca. Answer from Harrison. Mr. Garate Bustamante, when I met him, had just been either suspended or had left the state riot squad, the riot squad of the state police department, and he represented himself to me 
to be a chief of a special squad authorized by the governor. In fact, he had a plaque on his desk that said he was the chief of a special. You want to know what he was. That's what I understood he was. Question. Was Mr. Bustamante, to your knowledge, involved in working with and for drug traffickers? And he says, yes, as was every police officer I knew at the time. Yes. So again, you know, it's it's fascinating to me how much the investigation and the prosecution, and I didn't even mention earlier Godoy and Lopez and Ramon Lira, but how much the investigation and the prosecution relied upon Garate Bustamante, who, simply based on his past and his character, should have been deemed inherently unreliable. Or, at a minimum, reasonably could have been deemed sufficiently unreliable so as not to rely on either him or the pe- excuse me or the people that he brought to the government to the DEA to agent Breas. a few other things that i think are interesting um and i want to talk about this for a second <laughs> Mr. Medvin goes through, and again, Mr. Medvin is Ruben Zuno's counsel, Zuno too. He goes through all of the money that was paid to Harrison. And, you know, I'm just going to read a little bit for you. Uh, September 8th, $2,000. These are questions, all of which are responded to with a yes. Okay, Will you pay this amount? The answer from Harrison is yes. So we've got 1989, September 8th, 2000, September 15th, 2000, September 19th, 2000, September 27th, 1000, September 28th, 2000, October 3rd, 2000, October 17th, 1000. Then we skip to 1990. February 8th, 3,000. February 15th, 1,000. February 21st, 2,000. February 28th, 3,000. March 7th, 2,000. And then we go on and on and on. Um, Then we get later in 1990 and July 19th, 6,000. August 3rd, 3,500. September 1st, 3,500. September 4th, 6,000. September 25th, 3,500. November 2nd, 3,500. And I'm skipping a little bit, but you can see there's a lot. And apparently it adds up to um, some place in the vicinity of, I'm trying to to find here, about a little bit less than $200,000. So Mr. Medvin basically walks through those. And then later, Dr. Machine's counsel asks some questions. And he goes back to this money and says, 
hey, you know, you, you made a whole lot of money. Harrison responds by saying, I left Mexico. I left property in Mexico valued at $300,000. I came up here to do the right thing. I got paid some money, but I'm not sure that's a one-to-one trade. There's a little bit more back and forth with Machine's counsel, Mr. Rubin, and he says, you know, in essence, well, wait a second. You didn't come up here out of the goodness of your heart. You came up because you thought that there were, you know, you'd been shot prior to the Camarena um, kidnapping and murder. You thought that your life was in danger if you stayed in Mexico. And Ruben kind of presses that and presses that. And Harrison continually fights back and says, no, I came up to do the right thing. This was not a benefit for me. And I think that that dialogue presents an interesting issue. Remember, we've talked at all the monies that were paid, right? So we know that Garate Bustamante sent up a lot of people from Mexico, far more than ever testified, far more than you or I or probably anybody else really knows about. We're assuming that a lot of them got paid some money. And then we know the large sums of money that were paid to Cervantes and Placencia. And we talked about those. Harrison, Godoy, Lopez, Lira, and others, and others, and others. There's been no accounting that I'm aware of. No place that you can go and and find a spreadsheet that says, all right, here's all the people who were paid as part of the land investigation. Here's the ones that testified. Here's the ones that were paid and how much they were paid, but they never testified. And I have, there's a couple of points here. If you're trying to, if you're, you're wondering what the, what the point is. Number one, how do we look at somebody who gets paid for their testimony? And do we draw a distinction from somebody like a Harrison who says, Hey, I was doing okay down there. I had property that I'd bought a long time ago. I didn't need this. I did the right thing. The money didn't begin to compensate. Do you separate that from somebody like a Godoy or a Lopez Romero who are like, we had to get the hell out of Mexico because you know our lives were in danger and we got paid a whole lot of money. Or, you know, Cervantes who ended up having you know his whole family come up and was paid lots and lots of money and then he recanted much of his testimony. How do we how do we separate that out? How do we judge the prosecution that got almost no witnesses that provided any material information against any of the defendants who weren't either DEA or paid informants? Now, if we had Mr. Medrano or Mr. Carlton here, they would say, yeah, you're right. 
That was the two categories, but that's the only way it works in these cases. Same thing in, you know, like mafia cases. Who do you have? You have FBI and you have turncoats. But don't you wish there was something else that was corroborative? Especially in this case where it all goes back to Garate Bustamante. Or at least a lot of it does. So I think that that's interesting. It's also interesting to me that, you know, Harrison says over and over, hey, I did this because I thought it was the right thing to do. And Mr. Rubin, Machine's counsel, does a great job, I think, of saying, well, wait a second. When you were down in Mexico and you were working for people and you knew that Fonseca was, you know, doing drugs and and trafficking narcotics and so was Rafa and so was Felix Gallardo and so was Cochi Loco, you never went to the DEA. You never called anybody at the DEA office in at the American consulate. You didn't call anybody at the DEA in Mexico City or Los Angeles or anywhere else. So it seems, Mr. Rubin says to Harrison, that your decision to do good depended a whole lot on your position with respect to those people. When you're getting paid by them and you're in good favor with them, your patriotism's not that great. But when you get shot and your life is in danger, all of a sudden you're patriotic. Okay. Moving on in Harrison's testimony. Remember from the 1990 trial. Harrison says, I, in 1984, I was driving past 881 Lope de Vega. And I heard a radio transmission from Carl Quintero that came from that house. Number one, Lope de Vega is somewhat proximate to a main street, main thoroughfare, but it's in a residential neighborhood. It's not something that you would just kind of in your day-to-day existence drive past. It sits on a corner, Lope de Vega and Seoul. It's, again, residential. So it was always kind of interesting that he happened to be going past the house. In 1992, he gets asked about this a little bit more. And Harrison is much less definitive on exactly how and why he was driving past Lope de Vega which street he was on, which way he was going. Was he going north, south, east, west? Was Lope de Vega on the right side or left side? All of these sorts of things come up. And then, importantly, he becomes more equivocal with respect to Carl Quintero's voice. He says, I think that Mr. Carl Quintero was broadcasting from that house, even though the radio could just as well have been behind me as in front of me, I don't want to give anybody a false impression. There's, I don't have x-ray eyes. 
I couldn't say that he was definitely in that house. All I know is that he was broadcasting in an area within 40 or 50 feet of a circle around me. Okay. Now, can you say that that's still incriminating? Can you say it still presents the likelihood that Carl Quintero was at Lope de Vega? Yes, it does. But isn't it interesting how in 1990 he was definitive? 1992, he's more equivocal so that nobody could say he was lying if it was absolutely proven that Caro Quintero was never there. And he's asked about the, uh, the, the renter and said, nope, I never met him. I don't know who he is. That's the renter who testified for the defense and said, all of 1984, almost all of 1984 and years before that, I was a renter, right? Nobody else was in Lope de Vega. It wasn't owned by Caro Quintero and all these sorts of things. All right. It's one other interesting set of discussions that Mr. Rubin has in Dr. Alvarez Machine's counsel with Harrison. And this is very, very reminiscent of some of the issues that we have with Godoy and Lopez with respect to Ruben Zuno. Remember, we've talked about in the past how there are meetings between DEA agents, particularly Agent Bereas, some with Manny Madrano involved, where Godoy or Lopez doesn't mention Ruben Zuno, and then later on he does. This same thing is true with respect to Harrison and Alvarez Machine. And Ruben goes through and says, you know, isn't it true? That at that meeting, so this is one of the first meetings he had with the DEA, you never indicated that Dr. Machine gave injections at Fonseca's house. That's true. Question. In fact, isn't it also true that you never even mentioned Dr. Machine's name to Special Agent Schmidt? Mutually true. We never mentioned Dr. Machine's name. And there are... Lots of discussions like this goes on later. Question in that interview on September 8th, 1989, you didn't mention a word about Dr. Machine. Did you same answer? Neither asked nor answered question. Did you ever volunteer names in any of the interviews? Did you ever volunteer names that they didn't ask you about? Mr. Rubin, they weren't asking me to write a book. They were asking me questions. I was answering. So Harrison's argument, and I think you can think about it with respect to other witnesses, was he wasn't brought in in front of the DEA and the prosecution, and they said to him, tell us everything you know. And then they sat back. Harrison is saying they asked very specific questions to which he gave specific answers. And there was never a time when he was either asked to or thought that it was appropriate to volunteer information. 
I know there are retired law enforcement, DEA and others, who regularly or at least on occasion listen to these episodes. And I'm very curious what they would say or what their thoughts are about this assertion from Harrison. That it wasn't an open-ended question that asked for a narrative. He didn't, Harrison says, talk about Ruben Zuno in the first meetings because they never said, do you know Ruben Zuno? Eventually they said, have you ever seen Ruben Zuno? And he said, yes. Have you ever seen him in connection with the cartel people that you worked with? Yes. When? Two occasions, the dancing horse and Fonseca's house. Is that how it normally works? Again, not having been involved in that, I'm not sure. But I think Harrison's discussion here is an interesting point that we should also think about with respect to other witnesses. And I think Cervantes said something similar to that. And when we look a little bit later at Godoy and Lopez, we'll ask these same questions. Okay, so that's Harrison's testimony in 1992. Similar to 1990, some nuances added, some things to discuss. Discuss and think about. And this is a building process for all of us right? We're learning. We're thinking about issues that may not have seemed relevant, nuances that may not have seemed important previously that now become more important, that added to the depth of our intellectual processes with respect to this information. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, I took one for the team this week. Hector Boreas has, um, or there are some videos out on YouTube, several parts that are new interviews with Hector Boreas. Lots of things said. I didn't listen to all of it. But here's the one that's really, really important. In one of these interviews, or one of the the excerpts from these interviews. Agent Boreas says that the reason Agent Camarena was picked up and killed was because he had discovered the ranch where the CIA was training Contras and that that ranch was owned by Rafael Caro Quintero. Presumably, we are talking about the infamous, the dubious, the questionable Rancho Veracruz. That's not what's important. What's important in my mind is this progression that comes up. So in his book called The Last Narc, 
He says, he being Hector says, Camarena was kidnapped and murdered because he came up with the idea that we needed to chase the money, not the drugs. We were seizing huge amounts of drugs, but we were not really disrupting the cartels. And I've said over and over and over, and it's in my book in several places, that's a bunch of garbage. (laughs) All right. Number one, he was not the first person to think of, let's go after the money. Let's trace the money. Operation Padrino and others have been doing that. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. But that's what he says in his book. Then, if you remember the last narc, there's the famous line, or I call it the famous line, and I talk about it again in my book a lot, which is where he Hector says, Camarena was picked up and killed because he was, quote, about to make the connection financially between the traffickers and the CIA. He was about to. And I've said over and over how ridiculous I think this is. That if you're trying to say the CIA did it, that they kidnapped, interrogated, brutally tortured, and ended up murdering a fellow federal agent because that agent was, quote, about to, end quote, discover something makes absolutely no sense to me. But now we have a third version. It wasn't because he was the first one to say go after the money, and it wasn't because he was about to. It's because he discovered the ranch and the connection to the Contras and things. The idea that Cameron had discovered that absent evidence that I've never seen is ridiculous. Okay. Rancho Veracruz, nowhere near Guadalajara, nothing, nothing in any of Cameron's files that would indicate anything like that. Nothing known by anyone he worked with that would indicate anything like that. And that presumes, for the sake of argument, that such a ranch existed and that the training alleged to have occurred on that ranch actually occurred. But more importantly, for our purposes, how can it possibly be that Hector's assertions of why Agent Camarena was kidnapped and interrogated changes over time. From the book to the Amazon Prime show to this latest revelation. And I've got three possible explanations. One is that he discovered new information every time. That doesn't really strike me as highly likely. I don't think that uh, new information is coming to light, especially to somebody who's no longer involved in the investigation at all. 
Second is that maybe he doled the information out piecemeal over time in order to maintain his profile. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. And then you're left with maybe just making stuff up at different times in order to stay relevant. Right? He says, hey, Camarena was picked up because he was the first one to say, let's follow the money. Well, at some point, people forget about that. So now you got to say something new. Oh, no, it wasn't that. It said he was about to make this monumental connection between the traffickers and the CIA and the Contras. He was about to. And then that goes away. And all of a sudden, you got to come up with something else. You got to get on YouTube. You got to get interviewed. Your name's got to be out there. So what do you do? You say, no, it was the ranch. It was the ranch. If there's a better explanation, I'm all ears. Hector, if you've got a better explanation, if you want to talk about it, give me a call. You've got my number. I'd love to know. Why that critical, critical piece of information has changed over time. All right. With that, that is our episode for today. We will. We will go into Hector Boreas' testimony next week. It's Labor Day weekend. So it may actually be on Monday, not Sunday, next week. A couple of things I wanted to make you aware of. Mentioned last week, we're going to change this up a little bit in a couple of weeks here. And we're going to start doing videos of the podcast. And we are going to be able to show documents and things as we do it. So that's going to be fun. That'll connect in with our YouTube channel. Second, the newsletter I still think is really cool. Um, Lots of interesting information that goes out in there. It's a real quick read. Let me know if you want to get a copy of it. Um, Also happy to announce that the first draft of my second book is done. Goes to my publisher on September 30th, unless I die before then, trying to get it edited. Um, very happy with it. It's a continuation of Someone Had to Die, but it goes in a different direction. I think people who, who enjoyed the first one or like any of the topics that we've talked about here um, on this episode or on this podcast will enjoy the second book, um, and I'll keep you posted. That is it, my friends. Have a great week. Thank you for joining me. And that is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week. Take care.